0: The Iraq Petroleum Company's new pipeline from Kirkuk to Banias passes not far from the ruins of the ancient city of Palmyra. What was once a local marble arch is now only a monument to the past. Banias, the terminus of the pipeline, is on the Syrian.
1: at al by Bashir Mustafa. Kirkuk, O city of black gold, this flame of yours does not have a hearth, as though your insides burned blazingly, bursting forth from a closed heart, that complains with tongues of flame superiorly, and the superiority of the complainers is the greatest glory, and it draws with the lights the clearest picture of what grief and rebellion it suffers. Cook, I don't know. Did the verse of a poet shake my conscience unintentionally? Or my devil, which worships the magi, saw near the flame the holiest temple?
0: Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson.
2: I'm Sam Dolby.
0: And we're very happy to have with us today Arbella Betch-Limon, Associate Professor of History at the University of Washington, and author of a new book called City of Black Gold, Oil, Ethnicity, and the Making of Modern Kirkuk, which is just out from Stanford University Press. So Arbella, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is an interesting monograph in, in part because it takes as its subject a city that I have not read a full scholarly treatment of before, which is the city of Kirkuk, uh, which is in contemporary Iraq. So I wondered if you could just sort of introduce us to this place. Where is it? What were some of its defining characteristics in the 20th century? And sort of how did how did this become um, the place that you wanted to focus your research on? So Kirkuk is a very much a mid-sized
1: city in Iraq. It's never been one of the largest cities. Those are Baghdad, Basra, and Mosul. Those are really your three um, major metropolises in Iraq. And Kirkuk has always been kind of secondary. Depending on what population estimate you look at, there hasn't been a recent census in Iraq, but it's maybe the fourth to sixth largest city in the country. And it had one of the fastest rates of growth of any city in the country in the 20th century. And the reason is simply that oil was discovered near the city in 1927, and the Iraq Petroleum Company moved its headquarters there in 1931. And the city really transformed and grew. Its, its uh, population multiplied about five times between the mid-1920s and the 1950s. And it was known as Iraq's oil city, as the, the hub of the oil industry for decades.
0: And hence the city of Black Gold.
1: Hence the city of Black Gold. So that became um, a nickname for it in its native languages, Arabic and Turkish and Kurdish.
0: One of the things that you that you sort of point out about Kirkuk is that unlike some of the other well-known kind of oil cities of the Middle East in the 20th century, Kirkuk actually has a much longer and kind of more multipolar history to it than you know some of the newer oil cities say in the gulf. So so could you just tell us a little bit about that history?
1: Kirkuk is unique among the oil cities in the Middle East because it had a very long history prior to the oil industry. So if you've read Um, histories of places like Dharan or Abadan, for instance, in Saudi Arabia or Iran. These are cities that were really built for the oil companies. Ahmadi in Kuwait as well was built for the oil company. But Kirkuk features a citadel in the center of the city that until its population was cleared in the early 90s was one of the oldest continuously inhabited places in the world. So it actually had not just, um, you know, a very long, you know, centuries-long medieval to modern history, but also an ancient history, you know, going back into antiquity and before. And what makes it a bit different than than the cities that were designed for an oil company is that you have a pre-existing urban fabric that the company is then interacting with. So they're not building a new city from the ground up. When the companies did that, they tended, for example, to build a city with really explicit ethnic or racial segregation. That's not the case in Kirkuk. You do see urban segregation, but it doesn't develop in this top-down way where the company steps in and puts the Kurds in one neighborhood and the Turkmen's in another. It's much
0: uh, subtler and sort of harder to pin down than that. So you mentioned Kurds and Turkmen, um, and you know one of the, the subtitles of the book is about ethnicity. And we'll get into sort of definitions of that maybe a little later in the podcast. But could you just introduce us a little bit to like who who lives or has lived in, in Kirkuk? And sort of what are the communities that make this city what it was in the early 20th century and what it is today? If we
1: start with the beginning point of this book, so about 1918, at that point, the linguistic communities in the city are Turkish-speaking, Kurdish-speaking, Arabic-speaking, to a lesser extent Syriac or Neo-Aramaic-speaking as well, um, and then to some degree that correlates with you know a religious difference. So um, you know the Aramaic-speaking Christians versus um, the Turkish, Kurdish, and Arabic speakers are mostly Muslim, um, and then you have sectarian differences within that. So there are both Sunni and Shi' Muslims in, in Kirkuk. And then there was a Jewish community as well. And there were Turkish-speaking Jews and Turkish-speaking Christians, particularly living in the citadel, which was really a center of the, of the city's Turkish-speaking culture. And they had a, a local and still have a local dialect of Turkish, often known as Turkmani. It's a bit different than what's spoken in Anatolia. And there are other smaller communities as well. A small number of Armenians have ended up in Kirkuk. And with, you know, with the oil industry there, of course, there was an expat population for a long time. So it is uh, a surprisingly diverse and heterogeneous city for a city of its size and is, you know, I don't know how you want to define this, but it's arguably the most multilingual city of its size in the Middle East region in the sense that there isn't a clear majority native language today. Now, in the early 20th century, it was mostly a Turkish-speaking city, but that's something that's changed over time.
2: I just wanted to interject here. You describe people as Kurdish or Arabic-speaking, and it seems like a a really important part of this book is thinking about ethnicity as a process, as, as a historical process, and part of it is seeing when the language people choose to speak in becomes political and and when it's not. How do you do something like that to write about ethnicity without having the kind of totalizing nature of of describing people as one thing?
1: Yeah, it's um, something that is difficult. And what I found I had to do was to follow the cues of my sources. So you can approach a topic on a multilingual or multi-ethnic place by saying ethnicity is not a concept I want to reify. It's problematic. I just want to throw this out the window. It's a social construction. You know, ethnicity changes over time. Let's just not look at ethnicity. Let's look at something else. And I definitely read work that I would see as methodologically comparable to mine about places that are equally multilingual that influenced the way I approached my project where the, the authors would just not use the word ethnic. They would just avoid it. And I've actually found that over time through the 20th century, the concept of ethnicity using the English word starts to solidify with a lot of words in Kirkuk's native languages used by the people there that are um, analogous or can be translated as ethnicity, but they mean things like uh, nationality or race or something like that. And... You start to see words like nationality, race, people, the peoples of Kirkuk, the nationalities of Kirkuk, used to describe the linguistic communities, which increasingly are categorized as if they're these unitary groups of people. And so that's where I start using the ethnic terms. I start talking about the Turkmen's and the Kurds and the Arabs. So in the later chapters of the book, you'll see those terms. In the early chapters, it's not that simple. Right. So that's something that evolves over time. So
0: you use sort of Arabic speaking or Kurdish speaking or, you know, people who live in a certain neighborhood or practice a certain religion as your categories in the earlier part of the book. And then you move into a sort of more solidified ethnic vocabulary as indeed the characters in your story may have moved into that mode as well. That's right. Yeah. Those
1: those words appear much more later in the book.
2: So maybe to get at this kind of historical process of how people think about themselves in different ways. We have the Ottomans in this space, we have the British Mandate, we also have the Iraq Petroleum Company. Uh, these are some of the key actors in terms of forging ethnic identities, if we want to call it that. Um, how are these different groups mobilizing or utilizing or not caring about about these identifying markers in different ways?
1: Ethnic categorization of Kirkukis starts early in the 20th century, I argue but is not something that the population of Kirkuk itself really adopts consistently. So it's not that terms like Kurdish or Turkmen don't exist at that time, but they are really pretty fuzzy in definition.
0: And this is while Kirkuk is under Ottoman rule. So
1: I start right after the Ottoman era. So uh, the book starts in 1918 at the point where allied troops, British commanded troops have taken control of Kirkuk from the Ottoman empire. And At that point, these ethnic terms exist, but are used very inconsistently. And what we see is that British officials and other European officials, particularly a European commission that was appointed by the League of Nations to resolve the status of um, what's now northern Iraq at the time called the Mosul Vilayet, that the Republic of Turkey was claiming as part of their territory, Iraq was claiming as part of their territory, so these European commissioners come to this territory to try to figure out are these people Turkish or Iraqi essentially and they start polling, you know, lining people up and literally asking them, you know, are you Iraqi or Turkish to try to figure out where to uh, attach this region to. And they categorize the people of Kirkuk and of the Mosul Vilayet in general into categories like Kurdish, Turkmen, Arab, and Christian. Christian is not an ethnic term, nevertheless. It's kind of used as an ethnicized term here. They actually refer to them as Kirkuk's races. They use the the term race in the early 20th century. And they're frustrated by the fact that they can't get the people in the region themselves to buy into these categorizations in a predictable way. They actually find that to be a problem. And in, in the case of one commissioner who had a particularly racist ideology, evidence that these people were inferior and not very smart, Right. Um, so the colonial discourse brings in the idea of ethnicity, perhaps not using that word before people in the region themselves mm-hmm. start to adopt. What it.
0: W- did you find any evidence in your research for what kinds of self-definition or categories were at work among the people of Kirkuk as the British administration was trying to sort of impose or make sense of this language of races uh, and peoples? So certainly the races were there. Um,
1: certainly religious differences were there. So one of the earliest examples of a, what we might broadly call sectarian split in Kirkuk that happened very suddenly and briefly occurred in 1924, and that was a Muslim versus Christian uh, incident of intercommunal violence in which levies, levy forces on behalf of the British administration made up of local refugees who were Assyrian, Christian, Opened fire in central Kirkuk and killed people who were predominantly Turkmen or Turkish-speaking people in central Kirkuk and and Muslim. Those people then eventually turned on local Caldo Assyrian Christians who had nothing to do with the refugees from you know an area to the north who were not actually native to the city, and so that was a point where it became seen in the eyes of the local population as a Muslim versus Christian altercation. So you see that, that little difference, you know, bubbles up to the surface very suddenly and becomes a substantive difference in the basis for intercommunal violence. Um, but the, the sort of predictable Turkmen, Arab, Kurdish schema for understanding Kirkuk's conflict doesn't come in until decades later.
0: So you use the very evocative phrase, um, bubbles up to the surface. And obviously, there's something else that bubbles up to the surface in Kirkuk, which is the oil that's discovered there on a sort of large scale in 1927. So how does the Iraqi petroleum company that comes in to sort of exploit and manage this resource, how do they work within the categories established by the British or indeed invent sort of new kind of ethnicized schema for dealing with the people of Kirkuk?
1: That's a really interesting question. So the Iraq Petroleum Company is a foreign owned company, right? Despite the name and is a semi-colonial entity in that part of the shares are owned by the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which in turn is partly owned by the British government. And there's very close ties between the IPC and um, the British consulate, what's eventually a British consulate in Kirkuk. Um, Certainly, very close ties between them and mandate authorities early on uh, during the the mandate, which was until 1932. And the reason why this question is particularly interesting to me is that we have a lot of evidence that these foreign-owned oil companies in the Middle East, in other parts of the region, often were very explicit in their racial or ethnic categorization and segregation. As I mentioned earlier, in urban planning, you would see it in a place like the Haran, for instance. But in Kirkuk, we actually don't really see that. And in IPC documentation, I have not found evidence that the Iraq Petroleum Company categorized its workforce by ethnicity. You know, I've never come across a memo where they said, well, we have this many Turkmen employees and this many Kurdish employees. So it's actually not really how it happened. What really happened was that the IPC divided people more or less by class. So they had daily wage workers who they saw as unskilled. These people were poor. They were doing the hardest and most dangerous jobs, drilling in the fields, which were very risky jobs. People died you know, doing that work. And then people who were already elite in some sense, who had an access to, to an education, um, who already knew some English even because they needed to know English to work for the company, those were the people who then tended to work in the salaried office jobs. And as it happened, these categories corresponded to ethnic categories. The people who moved in to Kirkuk um, from the hinterland for those daily wage jobs were largely Kurdish-speaking people who Uh, had previously been engaged in agriculture, were no longer able to make a living that way, and they move in and they start working in these daily wage jobs and living in very poor conditions. The covenanted, as they called them, the salaried employees who had the cushier jobs were disproportionately Turkmen and Assyrian. And this is one of the ways that you start to see the IPC contributing to um, serious socioeconomic differences.
2: So one of the things I like about this book the most is... um the IPC and the ICP interface, <laughs> so the Iraq Petroleum Company and the Iraqi Communist Party. Yeah. So I I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about what the Communist Party is up to in Kirkuk in relation to the oil workers. Um, this is one of the most important social movements in modern Iraq, um, and I was wondering— you know, to what extent does that transcend these divisions that you just mentioned are kind of reinforced by the dynamics of the oil company, but not explicitly so?
1: I should start by explaining my laugh when you said IPC and ICP. Um, if you look closely at this manuscript, I never use the abbreviation ICP because everybody would get confused if i were talking about the ipc and the icp so i talk about the communists with uh-huh. a capital c yeah. that's my my way Perfect. around that we'll, we'll adopt um, the same schema in this <laughs> podcast <laughs> yeah so um the communist party of of iraq which as you say is really really important social and political movement in iraq for understanding iraq's modern history they had their base partly from iraq's heavy industries That included the railways, for example, but oil was the largest one. And so they sought to organize the oil workers. This was part of their, you know, activism to get people on board with the movement. And so the communists, I'll avoid saying ICP, the Communist Party sent operatives to Kirkuk in the 1940s to work for the oil company and to try to organize the workers. And they were gradually successful at doing that. They tried to form a union. They failed to do that. They did form a committee of workers who were willing to, you know, be part of this. And the, that committee approached the company and started to try to negotiate for um, a change in the workers' status and for, for you know higher wages and and. Um, housing. And that didn't work. And so then the Communist Party successfully organized a strike of the workforce, even if it wasn't totally ideological, even if these workers were not totally organized, there were long simmering grievances. The expats who worked for the company lived in this luxurious seclusion, as one British official put it, and had nothing to do with the life of the city, and a lot of people working for them were making a very low wage, doing very dangerous jobs, and um, they were not popular in the city, they were not well regarded. And we can see this actually by looking at, for instance, a, a novel by the Kirkukian novelist, Father Azawi, called The Last of the Angels, which in the original Arabic is Akhir al-Malaika, but you can also find an English translation of it where there's this real just like dripping disdain of the British oil officials. And I think even though it's a fictional novel, it reflects the way that people would have thought about it at the time. And you can kind of see the grievances that the Communist Party was tapping into.
0: So what's remarkable about this strike um, or this event, which I believe is in, is it 1946? 1946, yeah. Yeah. So it's less remarkable having heard what you've told us about the city of Kirkuk, but that, um, you know, this is a non-sectarian, not explicitly ethnic political actor, the Communist Party. Um, And so I guess I'm curious, to what extent did the communists have to deal with ethnicized identity by that point or or not? I mean, were they able to to simply organize people on basis of like workplace grievances and not not run afoul say of um, emerging sort of categories of ethnic identity?
1: The Iraqi Communist Party's relationship with emerging ethnic categories in Kirkuk actually changed quite a lot in a pretty short period of time. So as of 1946, the movement against the British oil company was very much non-ethnic and non-sectarian at least as far as I've seen in the evidence that I've looked at. It was a point where ethnic politics still did not predominate or organize local concerns in Kirkuk. It was a point where you could still organize a kind of leftist anti-colonial movement that cut across those categories at that point. Now this has changed a lot by just 12 years later, right? By 1958, when a coup overthrows the monarchy in Baghdad and kills most of the members of the old establishment and just you know, completely um, creates a new revolutionary government. At that point, the Iraqi Communist Party in Kirkuk is predominantly Kurdish. It's predominantly made up of working class Kurds and there's a real... Um, sort of intersection between the Kurdish nationalist movement and the Iraqi Communist Party in Kirkuk at that point, whereas the Turkmens in the city, historically the city's elites, tend to be anti-communist at this point. And that's where the communist versus anti-communist polarity in revolutionary Iraq erupts into ethnic violence in Kirkuk.
0: So how does that happen? I mean, you mentioned in the book, I think that 1958, the year of the coup was sort of a turning point, say, or an, or an explosion point in the sort of ethnic tensions or ethnicized tensions in the city. Um, so sort of what is the what is it that's happening say, in that kind of 10, 15 year period um, that brings some of these ethnicized identities to the fore, both within the Communist Party and, and beyond?
1: Yeah, there's a few things at play. So There's increasing socioeconomic segregation that tends to correspond to linguistic communities, which increasingly are becoming ethnic or ethnicized communities, right? So the 1946 strike led to a series of development projects that were spearheaded by the Iraq Petroleum Company and eventually by the Iraqi government to create things like a modern water system and electricity system for Kirkuk as well as housing. And my sense looking at how Kirkuk transformed in that period after the 1946 strike is that it became more segregated. So a few things happen at the same time. There's new neighborhoods being built that are more ethnically homogeneous And at the same time, there's an increase in literacy which leads to discourses about Kirkuk starting to be published for the first time. So you don't see a lot of books about Kirkuk being published prior to the 1940s or so, but 1940s and 1950s, these things start to come out. And you can see that in local discourse now, people are categorizing the population by ethnicity, although they wouldn't use the English word ethnicity at that point, but they might talk about nationalities or peoples or races or something to that effect. So there's more of a sense of division. Those divisions increasingly correspond correspond to tense class differences and even to physical segregation in the city. So by 1958, you're dealing with a much more unequal and segregated city.
2: One of the many intriguing details throughout this book um, is the story of artists and writers who push back against this sort of ethnicized identity. And you mentioned one of these people earlier, Azawi. Could you talk about the Kirkuk group and how they function in relation to Iraqi literature and also these emerging ethnicized politics.
1: Yeah, so Jama'at Kirkuk, or the Kirkuk group, was a group of literatures from Kirkuk. So novelists, poets, writers of other stripes, and artists, generally speaking. And these include Fadil al-Azawi, they include Anwar al-Ghassani, Bulos is a very well-known one, and quite a few other people as well, somewhat lesser known. These writers came from all of Kirkuk's linguistic, ethnic communities, religious as well. And some of them were even of, you know, Hassani, for instance, Anwar Hassani was of a mixed Turkmen and Arab background. So, you know, not everybody is one thing, right? People come from mixed backgrounds in a, in a diverse city. And they started out at least early on when they were young as leftists, they were very much influenced by the communists and really saw themselves very self-consciously as a multilingual and non-sectarian group. Sargon Boulos spoke late in his life in an interview that he did with an Arabic literary magazine about how they used to banter in multiple languages all the time and um, you know, make multilingual jokes and, and this sort of thing. And that was the way that they existed. They really saw themselves as people who became literatures because they lived in this diverse multilingual place that it made them love and appreciate the properties of language and that's what made them into poets and novelists and that trend is fascinating and also not in any way indicative of the way that most of Kirkuk's politics evolved over you know the 20th century so I think you're right that they position themselves as the pushback against that trend Um, they don't reflect the main trends in Kirkuk's politics, and yet they reflect something that I think a lot of Kirkukis wish was the dominant trend in Kirkuk's politics. I think among many Kirkukis, even those who have very strong ethnic nationalist views, they might have very strong Kurdish nationalist views, for example, and really want Kirkuk to be part of Kurdistan. But they also love this multilingual culture. And they love the fact that their city is diverse. And those two things actually coexist in tension all the time.
0: Did they write in Arabic? I mean, is Arabic the the literary language for the Kirkuk group, or are there also novels written in other of Kirkuk's native languages?
1: They wrote in all of Kirkuk's native languages, but I think Arabic is the predominant Mm -hmm. language that probably most of their work was published in.
0: Well, it's it's just so interesting to think about these two images of what, even in English, we struggle for words for cities like this, right? I mean, diverse, multi-ethnic, cosmopolitan, all of these kind of have different... uh, valences as terms, and that we see sort of the image that maybe people want to see, which is of this multilingual banter, you know, among artists and literatures. And then we also see some of the things you discussed earlier, where the politics of class and of employment are increasingly sort of devolve along ethnic or linguistic or religious lines. These two things are kind of happening in tandem, I think is really interesting.
1: They definitely do happen in tandem. And something we need to consider is that just because a place is diverse, multilingual, even cosmopolitan doesn't necessarily mean that there is a lack of conflict in that place. It also, you know, we can say the reverse, and we might say this to you know, maybe policymakers looking at this topic that just because a place is diverse, just because Kirkuk has all these ethnic groups or Iraq has Sunni and Shia Muslims or what have you, doesn't mean that there's inevitably going to be a conflict between those groups and you have to divide them up, right? Mm -hmm. So this, this goes both ways. I think that there's a tendency often to idealize diversity and sometimes there are power dynamics at play that actually lead to conflict, you know, just because a place is multilingual doesn't mean that it is inherently going to be peaceful in this, you know, sort of liberal ideal of diversity, right? But then at the same time, just because a place is diverse doesn't mean that conflict is inevitable.
2: So in the 60s and 70s, urban planning in Kirkuk changes, right? Uh, we have people like Doxiat is coming in. Um, it makes me wonder how central oil is to this story? Or also, uh, maybe more specifically, in what ways do the specific properties of oil shape, shape this story? Could it have been some other commodity? Or is the most important thing that this is a commodity that many different people want a cut of?
1: Yeah, so often, we talk about oil in the Middle East as something that generates conflict, because as you said, everybody wants a a cut of it. And that is often the assumption in writing about Kirkuk. So if you've ever heard or read about Kirkuk in the news, you've almost certainly seen it described as an oil rich city, um, the oil rich Iraqi city of Kirkuk. It'll appear in the headline or the first line of any article on this topic. And the underlying assumption is that the reason why there's a conflict there is because of oil. And I'm not so much debunking that or questioning that as I am reframing the whole concept of what it means for a conflict to be about oil. And I'm not the only person doing this. Um, A lot of recent histories by historians like, for instance, Farah al-Naqib looking at Kuwait City, um, Nelly de Fucaro, Toby Jones, Mandana Limbert, a lot of authors have have taken this approach of looking at how oil changes a place or how people think of their relationship to that place, or the politics, or state-society relations, or something to that effect, or, or their urban fabric, or you know, so we, we have to look at oil as something that has these kinds of local very, very practical often, and and sometimes, you know, higher level political effects rather than just this cash prize that everybody's fighting over. That's not really an interesting or helpful way of, of understanding it. As far as, you know, how much is the story of Kirkuk about oil as opposed to, let's say, another commodity? Perhaps in some counterfactual universe, it could have been about another commodity, and there could have been a conflict that developed as a result. But oil does have a few specific factors at play. One is that the technology to extract oil was developed in a Western context, and particularly in the United States, actually, which you know up until um, discoveries of oil in other parts of the world in the early 20th century, it was the, the world's largest oil producer. And the companies that then got the monopolies in places like Kirkuk to develop the oil were Western owned. So the Iraq petroleum company was jointly owned by British, French, American, and Dutch interests in which the British shares predominated. And so it was a company registered in London and it got a monopoly for, you know, developing Iraq's oil in 1925. So oil develops in this inherently colonial context And that's part of what generates inequality and tension around the oil industry. In Kirkuk, uh, going back to this point that the oil was literally bubbling out of the ground, that's not true everywhere. You know, in, in Saudi Arabia, they had to dig pretty deep to find the oil. In Kirkuk the oil was there. People could see it like it was actually coming. They didn't know that it was there in commercial quantities until 1927, but it had been there for thousands of years. People collected it and used it for all sorts of purposes like waterproofing rafts or uh, lighting lamps or, or things like that. It was actually something that was collected and sold on a small scale. And there were people who felt that they had a right, or in some cases, literally had a right under Ottoman era law to these oil seepages. And then this British company comes in and says, no, this is ours now. And they file a complaint and it doesn't go anywhere. And now the IPC controls the land that they thought was theirs. So the oil, develops in this context in which local people don't have control over what happens to it initially it's also a very dangerous commodity to extract and so the people doing the most dangerous hands-on work are you know suffering the effects of that while a foreign company is getting rich off of it and so this starts to fuel a specific kind of grievance it also creates profound socioeconomic inequalities that lead to stark differences between newer and older urban neighborhoods. Those that you know the older city elites might live in versus the people moving in to work for the oil company living in poor conditions. And so, you know, some of what I just said might apply to some other commodities, but I think a lot of it is pretty specific to oil.
0: And I just I really um, you know appreciate the the complexity of that answer because I think it you know when people say conflict is about the oil, what they what. They mean, I think, is that it's very simple, that people want to possess the commodity and get rich off of it. And that's it. And what you're saying is that it's not it's not is not about the oil. I mean, the oil and the political economy of oil is central to the kinds of, you know, both conflicts and political movements that arise in Kirkuk. But that when something is about oil, it's also about a lot of other things, you know, it's about colonialism, it's about, you know, rights to the land, it's about class struggle, it's about socioeconomic inequality, it's about urban development. And therefore, you know, the next time I read a news article that just says, well, this is mainly about the oil, those are all things that then need to be in my mind, right, as I think about that phrase. Absolutely. And I think that
1: the notion that something being about the oil is simple is actually profoundly counterproductive and even dangerous because it leads us to dismiss the possibility that there are deeper underlying problems here. Often the the notion that something is about the oil is used to actually dismiss the idea that it's about anything else. It's used as a way to, to foreclose further conversation about the topic. And that is actually very problematic in a case of a place like Kirkuk.
2: Ottoman History Podcast is a non-commercial, independent project. And that's why we're very grateful to our over 40 patrons whose small donations cover our cost and help build our program. In this episode, we'd like to send a shout-out to Annie Kaufman, Bashara Tony Raad, David Etheridge, Ruth Mandel, Jen Ting, Senem Aslan, and Elizabeth Frierson. Thanks for helping out and showing your support. To learn more about how to become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month, Visit our website, Ottoman Now back to our conversation with Arbella Bech Lemon about her new book, City of Black Gold.
0: So we were also, um, I think, very interested in um, the sort of process by which you had to research this work because of um, the difficulties of doing research work in Iraq and about Iraq uh, in, you know, the sort of post-Iraq war moment. So I was hoping you could just speak a little bit about, you know, the archives that you used and that weren't available to you and sort of I mean, some of the ethical or political dilemmas that you faced in the process of doing research for this work.
1: Yeah, so when I started this topic, I could not assume that I would be able to go to Kirkuk and do research there. And indeed, in the end, I didn't. I came close, but I didn't actually do research in Kirkuk itself, which is odd to write a book, an entire book about a city that I've never visited. And I hope sometime in my lifetime I'll be able to go, and it's going to be a very strange experience. The way that I initially approached this was by looking at the archives that were most easily available. You know, just started with, just for simplicity's sake, I flew to London. Um, So I started with the colonial archive, as a lot of historians of Iraq do, and really looked into the mandate era, as well as the era before that of, of British military control, starting in 1918. And I also, while in the UK, used the BP Archive, which is a corporate archive. It's which quite stands different. for British Petroleum. Yes, British okay. Petroleum. Today, the company has eliminated the words British Petroleum from its name and calls itself BP. But yes, the British Petroleum Archive. Um, and I found that to be different from the Colonial Archive because it was a corporate archive where you actually had to give the archivists, the files you wanted to use ahead of time, three weeks ahead of time so that they could um, decide what pages they wanted to pull out before showing it to you. There's no Freedom of Information Act that applies to a, a corporate archive. And so I started with sources that were um, available in the UK. And when I say freely available, I don't mean that the colonial or corporate archives are um, completely free, you know, all sorts of unflattering information has been (laughs) removed from them, but they're easy to access. And then moved from there, into you know you you use the archive to generate questions and then you use the questions to pursue new sources right so it's kind of symbiotic relationship between pulling out your primary sources generating your research questions going back to the sources generating new questions so once I was able to start generating research questions that was when I was able to start seeking local sources from Kirkuk and that was hard because it actually wasn't a, a um center of print culture in Iraq, I really thought, you know, naively that I could just go into WorldCat and find all the Kirkuk newspapers and go to the British Library or Library of Congress or, so, you know, even in Iraq or, you know, somewhere and just find them all. And as it turns out, they're not in any centralized location and they're really hard to find. I was really lucky actually to locate some periodicals from Kirkuk in Istanbul. Um, eventually, you know, I was able to get those and, and I'm get my hands on those. They were really interesting. Also a lot of local publications, again, just kind of found them scattered in libraries all over the world, sometimes was able to get them through interlibrary loan or sometimes was able to access them myself um, in person. And also people from Kirkuk ended up being a really invaluable source. I interviewed people living in diaspora. Um, I, I was really not, not keen on interviewing people currently living in Kirkuk because of the sensitivities of an American researcher wandering in and asking a lot of questions. Um, but I did talk to people living safely outside of it, including in Arbil. That was the closest I got. I did get into the Kurdistan region, um, and talk to people about their experiences and they were able to fill in all sorts of details once I was able to give them some of the stuff I learned from archives and often they were surprised at how much I knew and and then they could fill in you know really fascinating little details about things I didn't know before that Mm -hmm. that really kind of filled out the whole story.
0: But, you know, some of the archives that I know that, um, you know, people have available to them for the history of Iraq are archives that are now held in the United States, um, for example, at Stanford and uh, other places in the United States. And, you know, I think one of the things I was wondering about is sort of, these are archives, and, and you can describe this better than I can, that have been um, created and kind of compiled, you know, not necessarily for cookies, um, let's say, and sort of for political agendas that exist in the United States? How do you kind of approach using those kinds of sources?
1: Yeah, this is a a difficult topic ethically. It's very, very difficult. And it was a difficult decision to make to use those archives. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure I made the right decision. And so I've got a whole um, note on the ethics of the archives that I used at the end of my book because I feel it's something that we have to address explicitly as historians. I think that in certain disciplines, particularly anthropology, they've done a much better job of dealing with the politics of knowledge production. Historians tend to be like, oh, the archive's there, I'll use it, and not think through the ethics of it. And I think that finally, Iraq historians, uh, certainly many of us who've used both archives recently, I'm not the only one, um, Michael DeGerald, Alyssa Walter, others have in their work dealt very explicitly with the ethics of the archive that they've chosen to use. And so I did look at the Ba'ath files held at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And there I was looking specifically at digitized versions of the North Iraq data set, which the originals have actually been returned to the Kurdistan regional government, but Hoover tends to uh, continues to hold the digital versions. The North Iraq data set was seized initially by Kurdish troops in 1991 brought to the United States, digitized, returned, I believe, in 2007 to the Kurdistan regional government, but digitized in the early 90s. So you have this, this kind of poor quality scans that you're looking at. And very few documents from Kirkuk, and I believe none in that particular data set. Um, so very few documents from Kirkuk's Bath Bureau have come to light. So what you find in, in that data set is things from Arbil Soleimania, uh, things like that, right, rather than from Kirkuk. And the Kirkuk documents of the Ba'ath era from the North Iraq dataset are probably in the possession of the Kurdistan regional government, though nobody really, I've seen them cited in one paper by a KRG-linked uh, scholar, but nobody really knows for sure where they are. The ethical problem, of course, comes into play because these things were taken out of Iraq for Department of Defense, DOD purposes, and are not currently accessible to Iraqis. This is what makes that archive profoundly controversial. And ultimately I had to decide, you know, I I have to write about the Ba'ath era in Kirkuk. Uh, The Ba'ath party quite literally conceived and carried out a genocide from the vantage point of Kirkuk. I had to deal with that somehow and decided that I was going to use this archive to do it. Um, But whether or not I made The right decision ethically, I think, is up to the the reader to decide. I decided that I had to account for this era as fully as possible, and I ended up using the utilitarian reasoning of Dina Khoury, who has also used the same archive in her book Iraq in Wartime, where she says, as long as we're not using the archive according to the agendas of the people who created it, you know, Department of Defense, the Hoover Institution, then you know, we can read against the grain. We're not necessarily perpetuating that project, right? That sort of pro-war project. And I agreed with that reasoning when I decided to use that archive. Now my thinking on it is a little more complicated because I realized that by, for example, going to the Hoover Institution and signing my name on a ledger every day, that allows the Hoover Institution to say, look, we've had 180 researchers or whatever the number is now use this archive. Therefore, that, that gets used to justify continued funding for the archive and keeping it here. Well, why would we return it to Iraq if all these researchers are using it here? And so in some ways, I actually played into, I think, the, the archive being kept here. And that's a problem. And I, I don't have a clean answer to that question question. I don't think that we can um, simply leave the Bath archives aside and and just refuse to touch them as if they're toxic and say we're not going to do research in these archives. Um, I, I think that if I had written this book without accounting for the Bath era that that itself actually would have been an ethical problem and so ultimately I made the calculation that I made but I think the reader has to decide whether or not it was worth it.
0: Well I think at the very least from 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 my perspective you know the fact that you explicitly engage this conversation in which there is no clear ethical choice um, as a historian is incredibly valuable and hopefully you know can encourage other historians to be um, very transparent not only about where sources come from and the, the, the broader Politics of who has access to what, which doesn't apply only to, DoD organized or colonial archives, but in fact to any source that anybody um, is able to access, you know, comes to their hands through through a a set of of politics and power. Um, And I think that that's that's an incredibly useful conversation for us to be having within the the discipline, and also especially as Middle East historians, um, as we confront you know the difficulties of doing lots of kinds of archival research in the region. So,
1: yeah, I, I hope that by by adding that note to my book that others might think about doing the same thing, accounting for their positionality Mm -hmm. in relation to archives and accounting for how those archives got to them and how they are the ones who are able to access them and who might not be able to. And as you say, those are all very important questions that historians need to more explicitly engage with.
2: So from this discussion of the archival challenges of this work, it's very clear that this is not a history that can be divorced from the present. And I wonder if you could talk about how you've grappled with that fact as you've written.
1: I really approach this project by thinking about the problems of the present and then thinking about how looking at the past could illuminate the problems of the present. So it's true that not all historical projects have a presentist lens, and they don't all need to. And sometimes that's actually a problem, because you start to assume that the present is an inevitable endpoint, and that colors how you look at the past. And so, you know, presentism, I think, is criticized in historical methodology for good reason. But here, it really was the way that I started with the project. And so it ended up being a really a framing for the project. Um, I do try to emphasize, though, that what I found didn't necessarily have to lead to the ethnic conflict that we see today. Much of what I'm trying to do is to show how, in earlier time periods, um, for example, the clear categorization of Kirkukis in the British Mandate era into Kurds, Turkmens, Arabs, and Christians for the purposes of um, colonial politics didn't really take hold as the predominant political trend as late as 1946 we see a very non-sectarian form of communism taking hold rather than ethnic politics for example so much of what I'm doing is using the past to actually overturn the assumptions of ethnic conflict in the present it doesn't have to be this way it might be the simplest message that I would want to deliver to somebody who wants to try to resolve this conflict
0: well I think that's a that's a, a great note to end on and um, you know I hope that our, our listeners, both those who are historians of the modern Middle East and the much larger group who are simply sort of interested in, in the history and present of this region will sort of take that um, into account, that it didn't have to be this way. So we just want to thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a great conversation.
1: Thank you. It's been wonderful to be here.
0: So I encourage listeners to check out Arbella's new book, The City of Black Gold, just out from Stanford University Press. And also, as always, feel free to join us uh, on Facebook and Twitter, where we stay in touch with our over 30,000 listeners, and to check out more episodes at www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com.